EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by the Martins Centre. Hi, my name is Dimitar and I'm the host of Brussels Bytes, a podcast on technology and European policy. With our guests, we analyze the impact of tech on politics, business and European society. Our podcast tries to answer the crucial question, what happens when Brussels meets Silicon Valley? Over the next five years, our union will embark together on a transformation which will touch every part of our society and of our economy. And we will do it because it is the right thing to do, not because it will be easy. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard Ursula von der Leyen, who finally got the green light this week from the European Parliament for her and her European Commission to take office on Sunday, December the 1st. They'll have plenty to tackle in their first 100 days. And to help me tackle this podcast, let's welcome Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Abend. And Annabelle Dixon in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. Okay, why don't we start with the breaking news, which is, uh, as we record the podcast, the uh, vote to approve the new European Commission. This has obviously been somewhat delayed, so they're finally getting going. And I wondered if we might talk a little bit about who might be the the stars of this commission or who are the people that uh, particularly Paris, Berlin and London are kind of pinning their hopes on in this uh, commission. Reem, why don't you kick us off? Who do you think France is pinning their hopes on? I guess it's Thierry Breton, right? I mean, yeah, I'm sorry to be uh, not very uh, original in my response. Uh, it's it's definitely uh, Thierry Breton, given the the gigantic portfolio that they fought so hard for him to have, and more importantly for France to keep after that first hiccup with uh, Sylvie Goulard, the first uh, French commissioner candidate that was uh, rejected by the Parliament. They have very very big plans in Paris for this uh, for this commissioner. They feel like he will be. You know, they actually said this, the most important commissioner after a von der Leyen, which, you know, is a, is a really big statement. Matt, what about Berlin? And I know Berlin is obviously, you know, that's very much shorthand for lots of different people who may have different ideas. But do they feel they've got, you know, someone who's very much in their camp in, in von der Leyen? Or, you know, is she going to be kind of EU first, Germany second? Well, I think right now that's not really clear. I think everybody is hoping that she'll be in the German camp. And there's really, you know, to be honest, no reason to think that that she wouldn't be. I don't think that she can be too obvious about it. But at the end of the day, she she is German. And, um, you know, she's, she's not going to, uh, to, to, to run from that. So I, I think that it's hard for a uh, tiger to change its spots. Isn't that the phrase? I think it's a leopard. I'm not, a, a leopard. I'm not an Sorry. animal expert, yeah, but I believe it's a leopard. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, sort of thinking about von der Leyen and the way she might be doing her job, I'm already starting to see slight signs that she is not going to be as Macron compatible as people may have thought she could be and will be given the essential role he played in her becoming commissioner. Obviously, the latest and and most blatant is her sort of blunt opposition to what he said uh, on NATO. Yeah, same on enlargement, where I think she's stuck very much with the current commission's line and uh, with the Germans line. But what about from London, uh, Annabelle? Is the British government or, or indeed, you know, we're in an election period, the opposition who could form the next government? Have they got their hopes pinned on, on anybody in this commission who might give them a, a friendly reception when they're back around the table? 
Well, I'm not necessarily sure about the friendly reception, but I think the person that they'll be keeping the closest eye on will be their nearest neighbour, Phil Hogan, who's um, obviously the Trade Commissioner. He's going to be crucial in those negotiations for the future UK-EU trade deal. And I, I think the signs are that he's not going to be a soft touch, particularly given what's been going on over the last few years in just the withdrawal Ireland um, I think were, were underestimated by London quite how dug in Ireland would be and how unified they'd be with the European Union. I have to say, I, I noticed that we have a quiz up, how well do you know the Commission? Mm. And I suspect not many of the um, UK cabinet or shadow cabinet would be able to get many of those um, right. You mean they don't know who uh, which football team the Swedish uh, commissioner-designate supports? I have to say, I did this under pressure in, uh, in the office earlier, and it is not an easy quiz. So um, that's a little plug there if you want to try it. It's at politico.eu, get to know... Uh, the new European Commission, maybe Annabelle, your challenge should be to try and get somebody, a candidate on the campaign trail to take the quiz. Oh, Andrew, you've given away. I was going to ambush them with it. Now they're all going <laughs> yeah. to be prepared. Yeah, they'll because they all listen, it's true. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure you will. I'm sure you'll find uh, somebody. Maybe we'll just segue in while we've got you to um, a new section of the podcast, Ask Annabelle, where we <laughs> try and make sense of the British election uh, campaign. Anybody got uh, a question for Annabelle about the UK general election. Annabelle, do we have any kind of indications that this election is going to lead to a clear-cut majority in Parliament that will actually get us out of the deadlock we've been in for what seems like ever? Well, actually, good news for Brussels. It does look like Boris Johnson is pretty far ahead in the polls. Obviously, the polls haven't been the most reliable of late. I'm sure Brussels will be thrilled by that. <laughs> but um, it, it does seem that Boris Johnson does look like he's on track to get a majority. And a big enough majority to get his withdrawal agreement, the re the renegotiated withdrawal agreement through Parliament and done? Yeah, well, if he gets a majority, he's got all of his candidates to sign a pledge in blood or whatever it is, I don't know what it is, that they will back his deal. So um, it does seem like if he, if he can get a majority then particularly at the beginning of, of the parliament when everyone's sort of fresh and keen to impress and has hopes of ministerial office, um, he'll be able to usher them through the lobbies behind him. What do you think this means for Labour, though? I mean, assuming that they get sort of clobbered as the polls, as you, as you say, are, are suggesting, I mean, is, is Corbyn likely to remain in that case? I mean, he seems to still be pretty popular with, with the base of the party. If Boris Johnson gets a majority, I, I think we'll find that that's probably the end of Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, never say never. <laughs> we, we thought there was the end of Jeremy Corbyn quite a few times, but it does seem, I mean, as I've been talking to Labour MPs um, who've been out on the campaign trail and the things that they're hearing on the doorstep, even those who've been Corbyn cheerleaders in the past, you know, they do seem to be really worried. They are starting to see that in lots of parts of the population, the places where they need to win a majority, he is not popular and he is losing them the election. I was in the UK uh, last week and I, I think we'll hear more about that. We're going to do a special uh, UK general election edition of the podcast a week on Monday. So the Monday before uh, polling day in the general election. 
And I was kind of on the campaign trail in, in the centre of Scotland. We'll hear more about that. But I also uh, tuned in to what I think is quite a good uh, barometer sometimes of the political mood in Britain. And that's BBC Radio 2, which is the kind of, if you like, the middle of the road music station, the most popular station in the country. And they have a, a lunchtime show, as our, uh, some of our listeners will know, uh, normally hosted by Jeremy Vine, who happened to be off this day. But one thing that struck me was they were talking about the Labour manifesto. That was their first item the day after the launch of the manifesto. In other words, it made a splash. It landed. And I guess generally it's better to be talked about than not talked about, although obviously it depends how you're talked about. Annabelle, is there any sense that what happened last time could happen again, that in a sense, as people get to know the Labour policies, the gap narrows? Or, or why is that not happening this time? Well, when you say they were talking about the manifesto, I, I, th- I think that the advantage that the Labour Party think that they have and the reason that they think that the polls closed last time and could close this time is because they think they get a fairer hearing during, a, during an election. So in the UK, you have rules where the broadcasters have to give candidates equal amounts of time, which they don't have to do outside of a general election period. They, they do feel that they have to give these manifestos equal weight and equal time. So that's one of the reasons that the, that the Labour Party thinks that they have a better chance when it actually comes to the polls than you'd think outside election time. I, I had one more question on Corbyn and, you know, these sort of persistent accusations towards him involving anti-Semitism and uh, his you know, refusal this week to really address those effectively, at least in the eyes of the people who are making the accusations. Is that playing any role at all? Yeah, I, I think it's the long running nature of this and the fact that he just hasn't been able to, to close it down. He had an absolutely disastrous interview last night with um, veteran BBC interviewer Andrew Neil, where he was just asked and asked and asked to apologise. And lots It was worse of- than Prince Andrew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Worse than Prince Andrew. Um, so he was asked to apologise. And most politicians, you'd think, would just apologise, close it down, move on. But he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And and that's sort of symptomatic of the whole of the this particular sort of element of Labour Party politics. And one of the things that our own Charlie Cooper pointed out in his uh, London playbook, I think, uh, this morning was that the strange thing is that, that Corbyn had actually apologised previously or given kind of similar apologies and other members of the party had done so. And I think it, it did seem like one of those things where he was put on the spot and the way that and that style that Andrew Neil has, it was almost like it became a kind of duel between them and he wasn't going to give in. You know, probably any any kind of media trainer would tell you not to get sucked into that kind of thing, but it looked like he did. Let's move on. I thought we'd talk about Iran again this week. That seemed to, to work well last week. J- only joking. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the French. I think we can skip that this week. Thank you very much, <laughs> yeah. Andrew. Yeah, OK. Well, you know, we'll, we can always come back to it. Seems like an evergreen. Um, let's go to somewhere where there's much uh, broader agreement, the Franco-German relationship. You know, obviously, there's been more reporting over the past few days about, about the extent of the kind of tension between Macron and Merkel. Uh, on the other hand, we saw this uh, short paper, which, Reem, you got hold of, uh, an attempt for France and Germany to kind of show at least some kind of unity on their ideas for a conference on the on the future of Europe. But Matt, I wanted to come to you and just kind of ask you to cast your mind back and take the temperature now compared to how it's been over the past couple of decades, two or three decades. Yeah, well, I actually think that this is the norm, you know, that there's there usually is tension. There's sort of baseline tension and then you have periods where 
you know, they'll they'll come together and agree on something, and you'll be able to do, uh, you know, something big like the euro. Uh, but even then, there's always a kind of, you know, quid pro quo, uh, which is why I think that, you know, if people are misanalyzing this, if that's a word. Um, I think, you know, yes, there are tensions, but, uh, you know, it's it's rare for there not to be tensions. So, you know, I think you have to look at it through through that perspective. That said, I do think it's interesting now that, that the United States is not really defining a strategic vision for Europe in the same way that it has in the past. And so you have this, this vacuum there that Macron in particular is uh, seeking to fill, you know, but in order to, to come up with a, a solution, you know, you need to have these debates. So it might be a, a healthy thing. Reem, do you think um, that, that French officials also kind of see this as, as the norm? Or do they think things are, you know, a particularly low point, high point, somewhere in between? I'm always struck by how much French officials want to um, sort of minimize the problem that may exist with Germany. There is definitely a feeling of frustration in Paris with uh, with Berlin. I think in the past, perhaps Berlin was frustrated with Paris because the former presidents were not very invested in the European Union and in sort of building Europe into a real power. But today, the frustration seems to be going the other way. You have a French president who is extremely invested uh, in Europe. What I'm always struck by is the different terms uh, with which Paris and Berlin uh, refer to this very essential uh, relationship. So in France and in French, they talk about the Franco-German couple. It's a very emotional, emotive way of talking about it. Whereas in Germany, they talk about the Franco-German or the German-French engine. And it's a much more sort of pragmatic, mechanical way. And I think that is not just anecdotal. I think it does reveal uh, their different approaches to the relationship. And, you know, I have to say, perhaps it's time for the couple, as the French call it, to go to couples therapy. And perhaps this this Franco-German non-paper, as they called it, it could maybe turn into a couples therapy session, which might be a good thing and might be a bad thing. Okay, well, I guess it might be um, might be Ursula von der Leyen's role to try and be a kind of part therapist, part mechanic, so that you can sort out the couple and the exactly. engine, which, you know, will probably test her skills. Matt, quick one. Yeah, no, I, I just want to say, I mean, I, th- I think the problem with these things, this has actually come up in the past, you know, s- similar initiatives. And, you know, what, what you're going to see is immediate rejection of this from other EU members who were going to say, you know, we're past the time where we're just going to allow Germany and France to get together and to decide our future. Um, And I I think, you know, the Germans are pretty sensitive about, you know, creating that impression as well. Another crucial thing, though, here, I think, is this the fact that, you know, this time horizon, two years, and it probably will take that long. But Angela Merkel is probably going to be gone by then. And so, you know, I think, you know, this is sort of one, maybe one of the unfortunate things now is that Macron and Merkel are at sort of different stages in their political career. She's at the end. She's heading out. He really needs to kind of, you know, get things going on this front. And I don't think that they really get along either. I mean, get along on a personal level. They appear to have a, a you know, a fairly you know, good rapport with one another, at least they're, they're friendly to one another. But I think that everything that I hear about Macron and, and today again from a, 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 a French official who, who was here was saying, you know, well, you know, Macron doesn't really respond well to contrarian arguments. So I, I think you're really going to need a kind of 
you know, regime change in Germany for this uh, to become unstuck. I was talking to uh, our reporter, Jacopo Baragazzi, who you'll also hear in the second part of the podcast, and he was saying the initial signals from a discussion, I think, at EU ambas- among EU ambassadors today on this paper, it was pretty cool. There's not a great appetite for this among a lot of, you know, this kind of fundamental reform, big conference, possible treaty change. I think there's a lot of a lot of people in Brussels who feel they kind of have enough on their plates with the new commission and everything else. I will uh, wrap it up there. Annabel, Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's move to our feature interview this week. Our reporter and resident migration expert, Jacopo Baragazzi, sat down with outgoing Home Affairs Commissioner Dimitris Avramopoulos. The Greek politician has led the Commission's work on migration and border security, among other issues. And as you can tell in the interview, this is not the first time that Jacopo and Avramopoulos have met. The Commissioner said he wanted a frank discussion before leaving Brussels. They start out with the hot-button issue of migration and the criticism the Commission has faced particularly over its relocation scheme, which was drawn up in 2015 at the height of the migration crisis. Jacopo and the Commissioner also talk about Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and the future of the European People's Party, the EPP. It was a lively conversation. You'll even hear the table being thumped occasionally. And we'll play out the highlights in just one minute after a message from this week's sponsor. message from the Martin Center. Hey, it's me Dimitar again. If you like this podcast, I think you'll definitely be into my own podcast series called Brussels Bytes, where I discuss artificial intelligence, GDPR, tech, and even more with my guests. But hey, don't take my word for it. You can check out our podcast series Brussels Bytes, with a Y, on your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, have a listen at two other podcast series the Martin Center produces. Europe Out Loud with Federico Ottavio Reo delves into Europe's history, culture, and civilization, while Nicholas Novaki's Defense Dialogue features defense buffs and really goes to grind with European security. So now sit back, relax, and listen. Now let's hear that interview with Commissioner Avramopoulos, first with his response to criticism of the Commission's handling of the migration crisis. The Commission has taken the lead. What is the role of the Commission? To coordinate, to put on the table proposals, and this is what we have been doing. Now, if some governments have changed position for in domestic political reasons, that's another issue. But because me- populism, populism has started making our life difficult in Europe. And linked to migration and security, populism, since it is still on the rise, mixed up with nationalism, they put at stake directly the European project. Finally, it's not the economic crisis, but the refugee crisis that is putting Let danger on the European this, future. Because we had two relocation schemes, and one of them was mandatory, which is what countries like Hungary rejected. Do you think that the way the vote on mandatory location in 2015 was set up, meaning going for a majority vote instead of consensus, was uh, at the end a good idea? Because it was that vote that then fostered the divisions with Hungary and then with Poland. (laughs) It's a good point. Finally, the question is, is the egg giving birth to the chicken or the chicken is giving birth to the egg? Here, the treaties are very, very clear. The Commission has a role to play. 
and the, the Commission from day one started working very hard in order to respond to the needs of all member states. We were always saying from day one that it is a shared responsibility. Within Europe, we are very good in blaming each other. And this blame game has to stop. The Council has its own responsibilities. The Commission has taken up its own responsibilities and the Parliament as well. Given my experience during all these years, I can tell you that our stronger ally in uh, responding to all these needs was the Parliament. When you see uh, the way uh, migrants, asylum seekers, were treated uh, in Greece, do you feel any uh, shame about it? Definitely. I said it. I, I was very vocal uh, on that. And uh, it was one year ago when I said, let's hope that these images will uh, never be seen in the future again. It's shameful for everybody in Europe. But as we said, it is a shared European responsibility. When me and you started talking about this kind of things uh, almost five years ago, we had basically only a major north and south division. Now, five years later, we also have an east and west division. Do you think Angela Merkel has played any role in this? And uh, do you feel now more pessimistic about the future? The division is not uh, uh, geographical, neither geopolitical. It's mental. It's mental, my dear Jacob. Angela Merkel, I want to be very, very blunt in the way she behaved when Germany was hit by this very first wave of uncontrolled migrants was a very positive one. Angela Merkel at that moment proved herself to be a leader. She didn't listen to the voices of the populace. She behaved as a European leader and what she did exactly was to send the message of what do we mean when we talk about solidarity. Her example should have been followed by all other European leaders. But don't you think that some of those decisions actually fostered populism and nationalism? Uh, definitely, they were used by them by their own way to explain certain things, ignoring history. Even if we don't have uh, any more uh, figures so high, this uh, seems uh, not to matter anymore because there are many politicians that are exploiting a perception. And this perception is still that we are in a huge crisis. So how do you think that Europe can deal with fighting wrong perceptions? And does it make you, again, more pessimistic? Or? Perception is becoming a misconception. And a misconception is there whether we want to admit it or not. It is true what you just said, that uh, some politicians in Europe are exploiting uh, the migration uh, issue, which is not in a crisis mode anymore. We are not where we were five years ago. But populism has invested on that. And as long as the political verb is articulated in migra around migration, then it will lead to a wrong direction. For instance, if you ask your people in Italy, let's say, who is the one who should be responsible for managing migration and to give the green light for some people to come to Europe? You or Brussels? What will be the answer? I get your point, but it seems that you are a very prominent EPP figure. Let me ask somebody something about a key figure on this, in all of this, Viktor Orban. 
Do you think that the he should go back fully in the EPP, or do you think that the EPP should actually kick him out? Um, Mr. Orban is doing whatever he can in order to be kicked out from the EPP family. Uh, he is a smart man, but I think he has given priority to his domestic politics and he, to his uh, personal political uh, survival. So he should be out? It is up to the EPP to decide. But, but yourself? It's up to decide. But you're I a, said, you're a key figure. I, I was very clear before. I said he is doing whatever he can in order one day to be shown the door. I take it as a out. I'm going to ask you the last one about migration, but uh, I believe that we need to write to be a little bit shorter also in the replies. Jacopo, when you put the politician in front of the microphone, I know, I know, don't I know. ask from him to respect the time. <laughs> I know, I know, but so do you think <laughs> that uh, a reform of the Dublin system for asylum uh, that makes countries where refugees first enter responsible for their applications is reachable in the next five years, even though these political divisions that you just described have actually not changed. It's a question of political will. Do you see this political will now around for this reform? Uh, I don't see it, and I didn't see it during the last uh, uh, two years of my mandate uh, as a responsible uh, commissioner. But am I wrong, or you you don't see the political will now to reform Dublin? It's not a question of now or yesterday. It's a question of what is going to happen in, in the days to come. We have put on the table a very clear proposal. We were supported by the European Parliament. Unfortunately, some member states, some governments of very specific uh, member states did not agree with that. It is the moment for the new Commission to change their mind. How can you convince these governments? By telling them that it is in their interest to do it. Otherwise, they will be remoted, isolated and exposed to huge challenges in the future. So you think we'll have have Dublin reform in the next few years? I hope and I, and I wish Don't tell that me hope. happen. Don't tell me hope. But, but you asked me what I hope. No, but what, what do you think is possible, <laughs> not what you hope. <laughs> If you ask me what is possible, I, under the current political circumstances and conditions in Europe, it seems to me quite difficult. But as I said, it's a question of responsibility. Can I be more blunt? Please, please, well, please. Member states need strong national leaderships, but Europe needs a stronger European leadership. Who are they once among the leaders tomorrow that will put aside their so-called narrow-minded national interest in order to promote the European interest? Because if it doesn't work, then they will be held held accountable in the eyes of the next generations as the responsible ones for the collapse of the European project. You you sound much more pessimistic than a few years ago. I will take your your reply as a no. I don't see a political will for double reform. This is our last interview. I wanted to be honest and blunt and straightforward in these answers <laughs> because not the politician more than that tell us how things are for real for example in the balkans when you see uh, Bad. when you see emmanuel uh, macron stopping enlargement uh, do you think that uh, we are dealing with the next president of europe or with uh, a politician that applies a destructive diplomacy that can be dangerous for the rest of the bloc blunt Bluntly, I can tell you that uh, this position is not the, uh, the correct one. It is very important to recall what has happened in this part of Europe. You know there is a term in diplomacy and in politics, balkanization. What does it mean? Reverting to the past. So let's do our best in order to avoid 
any reversion to the past. We should avoid, by all means, the rebalkanization of the Balkans. And in order to do that, we have to keep open the window for the European prospect of these countries. If we close this door by saying that enlargement is not possible, then we push these countries to go back to what happened just some decades ago. So there is only one way forward, to keep their European perspective open. So this is my advice to the leaders of Europe, including President Macron, someone that I like, uh, respect and admire. But it's not only there. Whatever a big leader is taking into consideration today, in order to make a decision, has to take into account the whole of Europe. The very last questions. Whether you think that now we are safer compared to five years ago and if there is a deep state here in Europe? The deep state, uh, not in the way we know it in uh, national, uh, in nation uh, states. Uh, there is a strong, deep bureaucracy. But if this bureaucracy in Brussels is inspired by its political leadership, can produce fantastic results. In the very beginning, I was told that It was not necessary to do anything because uh, the bureaucratic uh, structure was working properly. So the deep state exists within the member states of the European Union, still resisting on whatever is uh, promoting the European idea. I have lived it, I have experienced it in the area of security. Well, the, the, where the, all these dramatic events in Brussels, in Bataclan, in Paris, uh, to push us forward in order to adopt the European agenda of migration. It was very difficult to convince member states to share information and intelligence. Can I tell you something? Maybe some of these terrorist attacks could have been averted if there was exchange of information before. So the security union, which was our initiative during this uh, uh, commission, that we want to set up, uh, will provide the member states with more space in order to trust each other. So the term that will define the future of our beloved Europe is trust. Trust and common understanding of uh, our common vision of where we want to live, of where our children have to live. Otherwise, we shall be responsible if we revert to the dark pages of our recent past in Europe. Very last one. Am I talking to the next president of Greece? What are you going to do in the future? Well, I, I'm always saying that what has defined my political career was a motto of a very famous French uh, diplomat, Talleyrand. Once, when he was asked a similar question like yours, he said, Je me mets à la disposition des événements. So, no plans, because whenever politicians make plans, history is smiling ironically. So you have the plans, but you're not going to tell us. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. That was Outgoing Home Affairs Commissioner Dimitris Avramopoulos. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and don't be shy. We'd love to hear your feedback at podcast at politico.eu. And you can also subscribe and rate the podcast on the platform of your choice. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.